0: I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of John and John 3. have been working our way through a study of the Gospel of John, and we spent some time in chapter 1. We went rather quickly through chapter 2, and there's a few verses of chapter 2 that we left from last week we actually began at the end of chapter 2 but we'll cover through verse 21 of chapter 3 and you may have noticed and all of this is is planned there's a lot of thought that goes into the components of a worship service but this will be one of three messages having to do with the context surrounding John 3:16 And the truth of those words. And those themes of love and grace. But this first week as we chart through this the way John records it. It's going to seem almost as if those themes may be veiled at the beginning. That it takes some understanding before we're able to see those clearly as the Lord would have us see them. And that would fit in with what we've studied so far. Just the way in which Jesus approached those who would follow him. He would make sure they knew what he meant. Not necessarily worried what he thought they thought of what he thought of them. But to make sure that, that their heart and their head and their understanding are all together understanding what it is they're actually looking for. So let me begin reading And we'll back up into the last few verses. There's one short paragraph there at the end of chapter 2. And you can listen as I read along. And then we'll ask for the Lord's help in understanding what we've just read. Now when he was in Jerusalem, that's Jesus, at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part "...did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man." Chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, "'Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God.'" That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, we ask, as we've asked so many times before, and as so many times have you re- given us, we've received The ability to understand your word. We ask again, Lord. Open our minds. Open our understanding. May we see what it is that you have in store for us. Comprehend it. And then, Lord, may we obey it. Apply it to where it needs to be applied. According to your grace. And it's these things we ask in your name. Amen. I thought it might be a good idea to start with a story something that happened to me and uh, has been useful to me thinking back on it it's it's strange how you look back on your life and the things that took place that looked more or less like chaos then seem to be arranged so that upon reflection you're able to see when you began to think different ways or act different ways things that made you uh, grow up things that made you who you are but On one occasion, when I was at Word of Life Bible Institute in Hudson, Florida, that's where I started out my college career. It was a one-year Bible course. That's all it was was just Bible. And then would transfer to Liberty University finish up my undergrad there. But as part of the requirements for uh, this Bible school, About once a month, they would send a group of us out on one of the vans. It would usually be a van or two. And it was called ministry teams. And what ministry teams would do was either go to a school where there were children or we would go um, to a youth group and help something they would do. But once a month, we went out to open-air evangelism. That was the hard one. Because you really had to put yourself out there to pass out tracts. There were some of us that would stand on a street corner and with a whiteboard with illustrations would go through the plan of the gospel for anybody who would stop and listen. And the rest of us would stand there and talk to the folks that would stand around and listen see if they had any questions in hopes to lead them to the Lord. We didn't have good success with this. You you can imagine, you're in Florida. It was usually either um, downtown in Tampa or Orlando on a weekend when people are off and they're there to eat or to hang out, not necessarily listen to college students fumble their way through the plan of salvation. But one night, this guy approached us afterward and said, I heard what you were saying to those folks over there and I want to hear more about it. And we thought, this has never happened before. <laughs> this is not how this works. <laughs> this is good. Uh, and we'd had limited success, but but nothing quite like this. So it's myself and two of my roommates. We'd gone off as, as the three of us. And uh, began to articulate the plan of salvation. As best I knew how. And, and was almost in the middle of it amazed at how everything seemed to fall into place. You do remember those things when you need to, rather than, well, I don't think I could ever... We could do it, and we did do that. When we got to the end, I asked the man if he wanted to trust Jesus, as his personal Savior. He said, yes. I said, would you like to pray with me? He said, yes. I prayed, and then he prayed. Everything looked perfect. So we had this time of rejoicing. Me, three roommates, and a guy we'd never met before, but now... He's our brother in Christ. If we talked a little bit, we had things to go do and get back on that van and go back to Hudson. And he said he had some things to do. But one last thing, he asked a question. He said, y'all wouldn't get me something to eat, would you? Because I hadn't eaten in a while. I'm real hungry. And I'd like to have a hot dog from that guy across the street. And there was a stainless steel umbrella on top hot dog cart like you'd see in New York. And I'm thinking in my head, you're asking college students, buddy. I think you're, you're out of luck because I didn't have any money and Eric didn't have any money, but Ben actually had some money. So we promised Ben we'd pay him back and Ben went across the street because he knew better than to just hand him money. Go over there and, and buy it for him. And I remember hearing as they went across the street, this man rather insistingly requesting that his hot dog be a plain hot dog. And I remember joking to Eric saying, If I was hungry, I'd load that thing up. Or I'd get two. It didn't make sense to me. And we're talking because we're trying to figure out what we're going to do next. And Ben comes back across the street. And the three of us are about to go down the street when we hear this verbal assault. From this guy who's supposed to be our new brother in Christ. And he's making a scene with this hot dog vendor. Because he wants his money back. He wants to return his hot dog. I didn't know you could return a hot dog. <laughs> but he's trying to return a hot dog. And that's probably why I wanted it plain. And he made a big enough scene that the man actually gave him, gave him Ben's money back. And we're standing there across the street just looking at each other. Hoping it can't be we've been had. We've been conned on the basis of the gospel. And I remember being so confused because you you think, I'm being obedient. They've put me in this situation. I'll do it because that's what Christians do. And I'm learning how to do this. I don't feel good about it because I don't feel good at it. But at least we did what we were supposed to do. And he heard the gospel. And he rejected the gospel on the basis of squeezing a buck out of my roommate, Ben who was the softest out of all of us. He was a Canadian, and I guess that's just... (laughs) the the way. But if I'd have had the money, I'd have bought the guy a hot dog too. But what I learned from that, and I wouldn't understand it for a while because it wasn't the first time I'd ever been burned, and it certainly wouldn't be the last time I'd ever been burned. And I don't know if I'd use the word burned, but if you're in ministry long enough, you see people come and you see people go. And it looks as if everything takes. And then you wonder, did anything take as far as their understanding of the gospel? So you develop this kind of attitude in the background running in in the, the machine that you don't wear out on front because it would be obnoxious. But here it is. We'll see about that. We will hopefully see about that. But we'll have to wait and see. Because for every person who says, I believe in Jesus, there are many more who said it once upon a time and something's not the same with that person. And what we just read out of this passage is a glaring instance of this very thing being explained by John the Apostle about those who believed on Jesus, but it says Jesus did not believe in them. It's a very shocking statement. And that's why I say all the things that we know are packed away in John 3.16 are said at the end of a discussion with Nicodemus as if to withhold an editorial comment. All of this is true because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John is explaining it to us after we watch what happens with a man who was pro-Jesus but not born again. That would be Nicodemus. And whether or not he's saved in time later, that's for another message. But that's what we look at today. So I don't think our culture that we live in, in today's age, is anywhere near comfortable with this type of an approach. Uh, Okay, we'll see. We'll see about that. And if a young boy says, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up, what does everybody say? You'll be a great astronaut. Nobody says, we'll see. We'll see if you've got the guts to stick with what's necessary to earn the respect, the intelligence, and the experience to actually fly a piece of metal into space. Nobody ever says that. We give them all the credit up front. Oh, you'll be a great astronaut or a great president or a great baseball player when most kids don't grow up to be professional baseball players. So in church, does it do us much good? And we'll have to be careful with this. We'll have to take how we act from Christ and how he acted in order to do this right. But we have a tendency to look at this sort of thing, as far as the Bible goes, and Christians, and saved, and unsaved, in binary terms. You know what binary terms are? Either or. A one or a zero. There are the good guys. Those are the pro-Jesus guys. And there are the anti-Jesus guys. Those are the bad guys. People that give Jesus a thumbs up. And people that give Jesus a thumbs down, and that's basically what it is. If you're cool with Jesus, he's cool with you. If you're not cool with Jesus, well, he's not cool with you. But there's not much in the middle. It's either or. Well, that's not the way Scripture describes it. What's worse is that we make the assumption that God looks at it that way too. And this passage will tell us that he doesn't. Now, once we read through... Chapter 1 and 2 of John's Gospel. It almost sounds as if that's exactly what John would have us think. That there are good guys and bad guys. I mean, if we just were re- review. You've got followers of John the Baptist leaving to follow Jesus in chapter 1. So we've got a, a, few, a handful of guys that are following Jesus. Hey, they're good, right? In chapter 2, they're called disciples. They're with Jesus at a wedding. After he turns water into wine at the end of that story, they believed on him when he manifested his glory. They'd seen something they'd never seen before, and they say, hey, this guy's different. We believe. So that sounds good. These are the good guys. Then we get to the end of chapter 2, which is what we looked at last week. And after Jesus chases off the animals and pours out the money on the floor and turns over the tables and cleanses the temple, you've got a group of men who come to him and demand an explanation. And these would ultimately be the same men who would orchestrate his death on a cross. Those are the bad guys, right? But then you get to verse 24. And when we get to verse 24, actually verse 23 and 24, we see a third category. And that is those who think they believe in Jesus. But actually, they're not quite there. There's more to it. Says who? Says Jesus. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, wouldn't you say for the guy who wrote the book, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, son of the living God, And believing you might have life in his name. That's why John wrote the book. He says these people are believing. This should be great news. This is the best news. It's happening. Within the book that he's writing, there are people doing what he's writing the book for others to do. Believe. This is great. But then he adds this little comment here. When they saw the signs that he was doing. As if to say it was a shallow belief. Based on what they had seen him do. They were, they were intrigued, they were interested, they were believing, but they have not yet believed because when we get to verse 24, look at it, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So the word entrust, if you mark in your Bibles, you can circle that word entrust And then back in verse 23, the word believed, that is the same Greek word. If you read that out of a Greek New Testament, in Greek, it's the same word translated differently in both verses, but it means the same thing. So what he's saying is that there's a group of people who trusted Jesus, but Jesus doesn't trust their trust. Or there's a group that committed themselves to Jesus, but Jesus isn't committing himself to them. Or these people believed on Jesus, but he isn't believing their belief. It would be a very wooden way of translating verse 23 and 24. And the reason why he can do this and why he can say this, because here's another thing in this culture that wouldn't fit with this. What about the kid who says, I am going to be an astronaut. And who are you to tell me I can't? And we would applaud him for standing up for himself. How dare anybody tell you you can't? So who is this Jesus to say to these people who say they believe in him? Well, I'm not buying that. Well, look, because he knew all people, he doesn't need anyone to bear witness. There's legal language in this whole book, bearing witness. He doesn't need to call witnesses to figure out what's in your heart. He knows it already. He made you. So he knows man. He himself knew what was inside. So he can say, he gets to say whether or not what's in our heart is good or bad. Because he's the one that gets to make that definition. So what's going on here? Jesus knows something that these people don't. This should be at least one takeaway from this message. You might want to write it down. It's a good point. Jesus knows you a lot better than you know yourself. He knows everything. You only have... Access to what you think in your own head, most of which is, is not right. Ask your wife, your husband, your child. That's really painful when, when your children ask you a question about something that they think is right or wrong based on what you taught them, but it looks as if you're fudging. Jesus knows us a lot better than we know ourselves. He needs no witness to the contents of our hearts. So, so far what we've learned before we get to chapter 3... There are those who have seen the power of Jesus and recognize and approve of his existence, even want a measure of proximity to his presence, but they believe there is something there. But Jesus doesn't believe their belief. I mean, what is it that people join a church for? To get closer to Jesus or to have something for their kids to do? Or, because their marriage is a wreck, and they desperately need something to help patch that together uh, you you fill in the blank, but there 's a lot of things that we could come toward a church for because we know there's there 's power there the, the The people that go there seem to have it together. I want some of that. we might even call them miracles or wonders or signs, and i 'm impressed I see there 's something there I, b- I believe the church has something to offer, but that 's not it yet. And chapter 3 is Exhibit A. Why is chapter 3 here right after chapter 4? Because John is going to give us an example. Just listen to how it reads. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he needed no one bear witness about him. For he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. For example is what he's saying. A guy who believed, but Jesus wasn't buying his belief. So he's an example of those described at the end of chapter 2. And boy, if there was a poster child for a thumbs up for Jesus, it would be Nicodemus. In fact, if there was a person that the nation of Israel thought was as sure for heaven as the nose on his face, they'd probably all say, well, good grief, if Nicodemus isn't going, none of us are going. But we're going to learn here he lacks something. He has not yet been born again. So what does all this mean? Well, quickly and before we get out of time and ahead of ourselves, let's make sure we understand what the message here is. And we'll be working on this message for the next two weeks. But Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Jesus responds to Nicodemus in his questions. And the message that Jesus has for Nicodemus is not just for Nicodemus. It's for everybody. He's talking to the world here. Don't know your translation, but if you've got a King James or an older translation, it probably has uh, the word ye. Ye must be born again instead of you. Ye is plural. The you in your ESV or NIV is plural too. Uh, we got rid of the ye's. We haven't ready to bring in the y'all yet, <laughs> but, but that's plural, right? And certainly not the, the uh, how's that do in the north? Use guys. But it's plural, okay? He's talking to everybody. And if God is talking about salvation, we really need to listen up. This isn't your roommate talking. This is not your mom on your back. This isn't the Christians you know that tell you you need to do this. This is what God brought down from heaven. Remember, Jesus was in heaven, then he became uh, he, was, he was God all the time and then became flesh. And that was to show us what we didn't know. Well, here's what he says. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's the difference between someone who's got belief and God's not buying it and someone who has belief and he does buy it? It's this new birth business to be born again. That's what it takes to get to heaven it's not what we see in the end of chapter 2. So back to the story. Who is Nicodemus? Let's study this example that John gives us so we make sure we know what's going on because I'm thinking there's probably more than one or two people wondering, I wonder if my belief is believable. So I'd like to see what Jesus says to this fella whose belief wasn't believable. Well, he was a Pharisee. Is that a good guy or a bad guy? Well, if you're thinking back to Sunday school, it's a bad guy. Because later they're going to be responsible for Christ's death. But at this point, nobody would have thought that's a bad guy. These were the guys that, that wrote the books in the bookstore on how to be a good Jewish person. We don't need the Star Wars music for Darth Vader when we hear of Pharisees. This was, this was a good guy. He was a ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he was an elder statesman. Significant reputation and an authority. You can't get a more A-listed person to do, come do an interview to this new 30-something-year-old who just tore the temple up. So this is an official visit here, and it's not a small thing. What does he say to Jesus? Well, to begin with, he makes a number of positive statements. He calls him teacher, which means he'd learned something from him. And for a teacher to call another person a teacher is to say, hey, you've, you've taught me. That was, it was a big deal. We know you've come from God, which means that he recognizes God having sent this man. And then he says, you've done great signs through his power, meaning that we haven't seen any of this before. So this is lots of thumbs up for Jesus and all to say of a person who's just 33 years old. This is basically unprecedented for a man of this talent. Caliber, so is he pro Jesus? Is he a good guy? about as much as he could be? Is he going to heaven yet, according to Jesus? no you 'd have to put yourself in some Jewish shoes, perhaps, transport yourself to this period, and listen as those who followed or read or listened or were taught by Nicodemus. You could just imagine the mushroom cloud of exploding heads. You're saying that Nicodemus is not going to inherit the kingdom of God? Who do you think you are? He's the poster child for this type of thing. If he's not going, no one's going. And actually, if you dig into the Mishnah, which was the traditions of, of Judaism... Basically, and there's a place that spells it all out, everybody that is born a Jew and gives half uh, of of their diligence toward doing what a good Jew should do, inherit the kingdom. They're they're sons of Abraham. They're all in. They're all going to heaven, except for a few, and they named them. There were the bad kings of Israel. They don't. Uh, There was the sons of Korah. You remember the earth opened up, and they fell in. Uh, There was a couple of bad guys like Balaam who tried to sell everybody off for some money. And then there was Doeg. Remember Doeg? He told Saul's men where David was. Dad always used to tell me when I was a kid, watch out for Doeg. Somebody's always watching. You mess up, they'll see it. Watch out for Doeg. That's free. Write that down. (laughs) Doeg's not going to heaven according to the Jewish tradition. But everybody else, unless you do something awful, you're in. You, you, you start by being in and then you have to do something bad to get out. What Jesus is saying here is abso- absolutely the opposite. It's as if he's here to blow all that up by saying, no, you're all automatically out. Unless something is done for you that you can't do for yourself to get you into a place where you're fit to be in heaven with the Lord. That's what he's trying to tell Nicodemus. And that's why Nicodemus is having such a hard time with this. You must be born again, is what he says. So what does it mean to be born again? Well, Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Some people are thinking he's being a smart aleck there. I don't know. It does seem to be quite a goofy thing to say in response to that. Now, I think no sooner than Livy was born, we wanted to put her back in. (laughs) Because she had the colic. She cried for six months. But it doesn't work that way. You can't go back in. He's talking in the physical realm. And Jesus is saying, no, this is quite spiritual. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, which is the same thing as saying born again, but in a more specific way, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, there's a lot that goes into what that means. What does it mean by spirit and water? And really, I think the best place to go is Ezekiel 36 to understand this. Because in Ezekiel 36, there's a prophecy of what will happen under this new covenant. Let me read it to you. You just listen. This is Ezekiel 36, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. Not unlike what John's baptism signified with repentance. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Sounds like new birth, doesn't it? And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So both what Jesus is saying here and what's prophesied in Ezekiel has a bath involved, which is for cleansing, and a new heart, which is actually a heart transplant. You're a new person. Not just a cleaned up person, but a new person. So Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, born of flesh isn't enough. That you were born out of your mother's womb is not enough. You need a whole new man, which is called regeneration. Look later at 6, uh, verse 6 again. The idea is to keep the two separate. Flesh is flesh, that's over here. Spirit is spirit, and that's over there. they two different things. Now you can, because you're here in John, flip back to chapter 1 and look at verse 12. And see if this lines up with it. When he was giving the claims of what Christ was here to do, look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the next step. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Who's doing the birthing here? The man or God? God does. The new birth is his business. And then there's one last final illustration. And we'll look at this more in the weeks to come. We're kind of blowing through all this just to get the lay of the land. But look how Jesus helps this man who's confused. He says, do not marvel. Do not be confused. Verse 7, I say to you, you must be born again. Don't let that confuse you. Then he gives us this illustration to help us with what that means. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, verse 8 is here to explain the how of salvation to us. Don't be confused about it, Nicodemus. If you don't get that, here, I'll help you. It's like the wind. And when it blows, you don't know where it came from, and you don't know where it's going. You feel it. You hear it. That's just like it is when you're born again. Now, how many of you would be with Nicodemus and say, what? How's that supposed to help me? I want to know what I need to do to be saved. And you're telling me, it's going to blow over me like the wind that I don't know where it came from or where it's going. I can feel it and I know when it happens, but I don't have anything to do with it. Exactly. Jesus is saying that the born again part is his business. The belief is your business. You say, well, how do I go from belief like the people at the end of chapter 2 to born again like this guy who's struggling with it in chapter 3? Well, it seems as if there's more to the conversation that's going to go back and forth. But basically what we know, at least at this point, is that to be born again, which is necessary to get to heaven, that is to be a new person, transformation. And that happens by the work of God. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So back to chapter 2 and to wrap this up and to hopefully give those who are confused an answer. So what if I'm still worried that my belief is not new birth? My belief isn't believable. I've come to Jesus, but Jesus is not entrusting himself to me. What's left? What do I need to do? Again, that's the wrong question. It's not... What do I need to do? Because Jesus is going to do that. Well, I want to be saved. I want to be born again. I've learned that there's nothing I do. How about another question? If it's done for me, if the actual mechanics of being born again is something God does to me and changes my life, I'm not changing my own life, He's changing my life, then how will I know if it happened? That's the better question. How do I know? Now, we have our Bibles in front of us, and the same man that wrote John's gospel wrote other books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Revelation. In 1st John, he tells us why he's writing it, just like he did in his gospel. His gospel is written that you might believe, right? 1st John is written that you might know that you've believed, that you're born again. And how does he explain to a person in those five chapters, it's a short little book, how they might know? By examining the way they look. If you're a new man, you ought to look like a new man, right? And who do you think you ought to look like if you're the new man? Like the man, Jesus, right? So the new birth experience is at least two things that's going to be visible in your life and visible primarily to you. You're going to have a new allegiance and new affections. That's, all, that, that's what 1 John's all about. They're going to show you how you should be loving your neighbor. How you can't have a secret sin and say that you're not sinning. That'd be calling yourself a liar. And, and he goes by pieces. It, it, it's not complicated, but it's thorough. So a new allegiance and new affections are part of the new birth. And you'll know when it's happened because your life will be different. How does John say that you'll know? By indications of these things. And just as an illustration to help you with that, because I know all that just sounds like a bunch of words, and maybe it'll work, but uh, draw me a picture. Let's draw a picture. Ever paid attention to how Jesus answers the questions, what must I do to have eternal life? You could reword that. How do I be saved? I want to go to heaven. How do I have eternal life? When I'm dead, I'll, I'll, I'll live on somewhere else. How do, I, how do I do that? Jesus was asked that a number of times. How did he deal with it? Well, let's do one of the more famous ones. The rich young ruler. Almost as if he was playing with it. He says, you tell me. And okay, believe the, the, the commandments. Obey. Neighbors yourself. All those things. Jesus gives him, feeds him more. And he says, I've done all that since I was a kid, right? And then Jesus says, one thing you lack. What does he tell him to do? Take all his stuff, sell it, take the money, give it to somebody else, and then follow him. Now, is that how you are saved? I hope not. Because I don't know of anybody in this room who sold everything they had, gave to the poor, and then followed Jesus. That's not what he's after. What Jesus is after is an indication of whether or not this man is willing to change his allegiance and his affections. And what does he do? He walks off. Because he's not ready to be... He's the rich young ruler. He's not ready to be poor. He'll still be young. But he won't have any influence. He'll be a nobody to follow Jesus. Jesus is doing a gut check on this man to make sure whether or not he's in for what this is all about. And he answers no. This man believed, but Jesus wasn't believing because there's, there's no change. There's been no new birth there. There are other stories like this. Do you remember the, the fellow who was uh, forgiven a real great debt and he couldn't pay it if he had all his life to work for it? And the guy who he owed said, forget it. I'll write it off. And we're not told how he wrote it off or if he owed it to somebody else. doesn't matter. What matters in that story is that it was his business. The man who was forgiven had nothing to do with it. He couldn't if he wanted to. He had no, no bargaining chips. So he walks out forgiven and finds a guy who owes him five bucks comparatively. And what happens? He lays his hands on him. You pay me back. And he throws him in jail because the man can't. And the word gets back to the king Who says you haven't learned anything. I'm throwing you in jail. Where the tormentors are. Where the tormentors. The things in life that tear you in so many pieces. When it's all about you. Because this world doesn't revolve around you. So it will tear you in pieces if you try to live like it does. But Jesus is looking for different affections. Different allegiance. It's not there. The new birth involves these things. So at the end of this, we'll learn when when we work through it the next two weeks that it's John at the end of the paragraph at verse 16 who's explaining what's going on. And and, and there are those whose Bibles have John 3.16 in red letters that Jesus said those words. Well, a lot of the scholarship now believes it's John now talking. He's explaining what Jesus had said with Nicodemus. Either way, it's still Scripture and it's still true. But he says, for God so loved the world. It's the only time in scripture that you'll ever see God loving the world. And no Jew would ever believe that. God didn't love the world. God loved the Jews. That's what they thought. No, God loved the world. And he gave his only son to show his love. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Belief is all that it says you have to do here. But folks, we're going to learn as we move through this that belief, the real belief, is actually a gift from God and part of the new birth. You believe in Jesus? That's an indication of your new birth. Because you don't bring that to the table. Dead men can't believe in anything. We're dead in our trespasses as lost people apart from God breathing life into us. Now we know that belief, real belief, comes from a new birth. Maybe this is new to you. And I would hope that in no church people could attend for any length of time and then say later, no one ever told me the truth of what it means to be born again or what it is to believe or that there's a belief that Jesus doesn't believe in. You're scaring me now. Nobody ever ever talked about that. Well, you can't say that about Wake Chapel, at least after today. This isn't the fun part to teach. We're going to get to the 16 and 17, where he didn't come here to condemn anybody, but that they could be saved through him. So what posture should you take if you want to make sure you don't miss out on this free gift of grace and new birth? Well, one more story. Do you remember the guy who had a son who was very sick? In fact, he was actually oppressed by demons, the Bible says. Threw the kid all around. You think that it was going to kill him. The man comes to Jesus. There's a crowd there to watch. And he says, can you help my son? If you can help him, would you? And it's basically like Jesus says, if I can help. If you have belief, anything's possible. The man burst into tears and he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's part of this I don't know yet. I need that too. I want it all. The person that's worried about their sins is someone that is being tractor beamed in by the Lord, right? Say, I worry about this. Well, that's a good sign. Most of the world doesn't. But if you do, this is the process of this new birth of believing in Jesus. Help my unbelief. So, if this is you, if if you're wrestling with these thoughts, before the sun goes down, get alone somewhere and quiet and ask the Lord for help with this. Be the guy who says to the one who can give you the new birth I want the new birth, I want to believe. I want to believe what I don't believe. I don't know that I don't believe yet. Kind of like David asking for forgiveness of sins he didn't know he sinned. But folks, this is the gospel. Help my unbelief. And with that said, I think it's sufficient here to understand this text. And we'll work with it some more in the weeks to come. And then we'll ask God to help us be obedient. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for your word and Lord we stand or sit in awe at a verse of scripture that would surprise us that there would be someone who'd say I like Jesus but Jesus is withholding his belief Lord may we see that as grace. Because what good would it do us for him to confirm our insufficient belief? To tell us that we're part of a family that we're really not. So Lord, may the truth of these bore into our thinking, into our heart. And Lord, may they be our salvation if we've not yet been born again. To know that there's, there's more to this. To trust you for not just things that you can do for us, but to trust you to make us a new creation, a completely, totally different person, a child of God. Lord, may your word do the business of change, and we may we be faithful to help others along the way, and their believing that you were who you said you were. We ask all this in your precious name.
1: Amen. Pray with me, please. Dear Lord, uh, we just thank you for this place. Uh, We thank you that we can come and worship, sing praises to your name, Lord, learn about your word, and just be taught by a, a great teacher, Lord. We thank you for sending Pastor Isaac to us, Lord and the messages that he brings us each Sunday and Wednesday evenings. Lord, um, we just thank you for your grace and mercy, and especially your love, Lord, uh, that you've shown us by sending us a savior, someone who died on the cross to pay for our sins, Lord, and we thank you for that. Lord, we lift up those that are on our uh, prayer list. Lord, many people have been on that list for some time. We ask your blessing on them for the families of those people. We ask you for healing where it's needed, Lord, for comfort, for reassurance especially, Lord, for those who uh, just uh, are down and out. Lord, we just thank you for all that you can do for us. Lord, we lift up uh, teams for medical missions in Jamaica, Lord, as they uh, spread the gospel uh, through construction projects, Bible teaching, and having missionaries and volunteers to... um, work there. Oh Lord, we especially thank those from this congregation that have spent time in Jamaica from time to time for the Teams for Medical Missions, and we thank you that you've always blessed them and returned them to us safely. Lord, as we go out this week, um, cause the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts that we can show your love and honor you in all that we do, in all that we plan to do in all all our activities throughout this week, um, and that we can glorify your name in Jesus' name. Amen.